Well, it's certainly a pleasure to be asked to introduce somebody uh, like Alan Stang. It's going to be a real barn burner. It always leaves the best to last, I guess. There are a few of us that are a little bit uh, worried about Alan, though. Uh, ever since, uh, I'm sure those of you that read American Opinion, uh, aware that maybe Alan's not playing with a full deck of cards now. We're, we're afraid that he lost his queen of hearts out in California. Uh, so, uh, anyhow, Alan's one of these guys that, uh, unlike the liberal element, who believe that you tell a lie long enough that it'll become the gospel truth, he believes that if you tell the truth often enough, that it will, and take enough pains, it'll bring the truth to light. And of course, he's been spending his life uh, taking these pains, bringing as much truth to his fellow Americans as possible as a result of his writings, his lectures, his radio commentary. He's on over 120 stations now across the United States. He is responsible for motivating thousands of people, of Americans, to take a greater interest in affairs of this nation. He's the author of three books. It's very simple. It's a definite study of the communist influence in the civil rights movement, the actor, which examines the career of John Foster Dulles and the late diplomat's influence on U.S. foreign policy. In his first novel, The Highest Virtue. He is a contributing editor to American Opinion magazine and the Review of the News. Millions of copies of his books and articles have been read throughout this country, and many thousands have heard him speak. Alan is here today to inspire us on the many victories of the Americanist movement here in the United States. And it is with extreme pleasure that I introduce to you the incomparable, one and only, Alan Stang, speaking on The Americans Are Here. Alan? Here's, uh, here's the uh, Colorado Springs Gazette, Gazette Telegraph of uh, the day before yesterday. No, it's, it's yesterday's paper, Saturday. I'm sure some of you saw it. Inflation rate for May jumps to double digits. We're now in double-digit double inflation. Now, of course, uh, the headline there is a little misleading because the, the uh, Colorado Springs Gazette Telegraph isn't really talking about inflation there, are they? They're talking about prices rising. Prices are now rising in the double-digit figures. It's an easy misunderstanding to make. Uh, you and I know, of course, this has been mentioned so many times during the course of the past couple of days, that inflation is caused by the government spending money that it doesn't have, printing counterfeit paper currency to pay its bills, and the result of that inflation, according to the dictionary, the best reference source, uh, you will always find is rising prices. And that's why we see prices now jumping into the double-digit figures. So you can see how incredibly bad the situation is right now. Now, if you want to know what the real inflation rate is, here is uh, a good indication of it. Here's the Federal Reserve statistical release issued on January 19th of this year. 
And this tells us that the money supply at the end of 76 was $1,300 billion. At the end of 77, it's $1,448 billion. That means that the money supply was increased 11.4% last year. And now we are told by one of your local papers that the prices are jumping just about that amount, aren't they? So you see what an exact relationship there is between the amount of counterfeit paper currency that is flooded into our economy to pay the government's bills and the resulting price rises in the economy. Once again, all as the dictionary says, it will happen. Now, as you know, the deficit this year is going to be at least $60 billion. And in fact, in the latest issue of the Review of the News, I'm sure some of you already have read it, you'll see there that Congressman Jim Collins, the great congressman from Texas, he tells us that the deficit for the next fiscal year alone is going to be in the neighborhood of $100 billion. Can you believe that? In one single year, $100 billion of deficit? You know what that is going to do when it hits the fan? What the prices are going to do as a result of that inflation, if we see today in yesterday's paper that the prices already are in the double-digit figures, so you see how bad the situation we are talking about actually is. Now, not long ago, there was a recent, uh, there was an interesting item in one of your local papers, the Rocky Mountain News, and uh, this item tells us that federal aid to individuals equals 69% of tax receipts. You know what that means? Almost 70% of the taxes that you are forced to pay are redistributed to other people around the country. In other words, we almost have at this point, according to your local paper here, we almost have complete redistribution of the people's wealth. What do you call that in one word? Well, Karl Marx called it communism, didn't he? That's what the redistribution of wealth means. And here you can see incredibly, I wasn't aware it was so high myself, according to a study conducted by Pace University in White Plains, New York, almost 70% of the taxes that you pay, once again, are redistributed to other people. Now, if we take a look at some of the other things that are going on right now, the Environmental Protection Agency, it seems, has uh, accused the state of Iowa of not having any criteria for the discharge of pollutants into the ocean. An Iowa state official has explained that Iowa doesn't adjoin an ocean and hasn't for the last two million years. <laughs> we don't know where that's going to end. It's, it's in Washington right now. Now, you'll remember that last year when we were here, I told you about the Furbish lousewort. And you'll remember that the ecologists are worried about this Furbish lousewort, which is a weed. And according to the dictionary, it's so named because it was believed to give lice to the cattle that ate it. And you'll remember from last year that the Smithsonian Institution declared it extinct in 1943, and we have all lived quite happily without it ever since. But you may remember a couple of years ago, the government conveniently found a couple of hundred of these louse warts and has been using them as the reason to stop construction on the $700 million Dickey Lincoln hydroelectric project in Maine. The powers that be expect us to believe that this crummy pest is more important than people. But now, it turns out that just, uh, oh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was, the United States Supreme Court, you will remember, ruled in favor of the lousewort and against the people. And so it turns out that the, uh, this huge energy project is not going to be built, at least as it stands now, and uh, the Teleco Dam in Tennessee apparently is not going to be completed. That is a $116 million facility. 
And the reason that's not going to be built pursuant to this decision of the Supreme Court is uh, an, an organism known as the snail darter. This is a three-inch fish that darts after snails, and that's why they call it the snail darter. <laughs> it all fits together if you concentrate. <laughs> and it seems uh, they're not going to complete this badly needed dam because of this snail darter. And as a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you should be aware, I hope you all are, for those of you who may not be aware of it, the Environmental Protection Agency recently came up with a new endangered species, the Socorro isopod. This is a 14-legged water bug. Somehow these bugs, which are about half an inch long, have survived for millions of years. But government scientists say that only 2,500 of them are left, and they all live in a 90-foot section of drain pipe that leads to an abandoned bathhouse in New Mexico. Some of you I know are now planning your summer vacations. You may be leaving here on your summer vacations, and you may want to include in your itinerary in the nearby state of New Mexico this remarkable new tourist attraction. You simply place your eye against the drain pipe and watch the Socorro isopods cavort. There is uh, a hitch here, as you may have suspected. Uh, the bathhouse is located near a big geothermal energy project, which may have to be canceled or moved elsewhere. So if uh, the people in that part of the country wind up freezing in the dark, as the bumper sticker puts it, uh, because this geothermal, uh, geothermal energy project has to be canceled, why, at least they will have the wonderful spiritual satisfaction of knowing that the Socorro isopod is safe. Now here's a headline that appeared in the Boston Herald American just a couple of weeks ago, June 13th. Natural gas surplus looms. This is the latest problem you're going to have to deal with, ladies and gentlemen. It isn't visible, nor has it yet affected the market, according to the Wall Street Journal, because of expanded storage facilities for natural gas, which have so far taken care of the surplus flow. But they can't build the storage facilities fast enough. There's so much natural gas. We're going to be inundated. EPA is going to have to issue gas masks. <laughs> of course, we were just being told a couple of weeks ago we had a shortage of natural gas, weren't we? Uh, as a matter of fact, here's another interesting uh, headline from the front page of the Boston Herald American, and uh, this is June 13th, Boston Herald American. Plenty of gasoline expected for summer. As a matter of fact, in, in this... This previous clipping I just read to you from, it says, uh, although many of the figures are highly speculative, it has not gone without notice by the Arabs and their cohorts that the World Bank has upped world oil reserves from two trillion barrels up to five trillion barrels. And here we're told plenty of gasoline expected for summer. Here's the headline on the Boston Herald American, Friday, June 23rd, 10 days later. Gas ration plan, two gallons a day. What is this, some kind of a joke? How dumb do these people think we are? Hmm? Huh? On the 13th, we're, we're told we have to worry about an abundance, an overabundance of natural gas and oil. Ten days later, the Energy Department unveils its gas rationing plan. As a matter of fact, John Sawhill, who used to be the energy boss 
in the United States. Sawhill made a speech recently in Washington to the Trilateral Commission. I presume most of you have heard of it. And uh, in this recent secret meeting of the Trilateral Commission, as you know, one thing we can't stand is secret meetings. That's why we have the doors open. <laughs> Sawhill said that Americans can look around and see new sources of oil being developed in Alaska, the North Sea, and other areas of the world, and they know there is not going to be an energy shortage in the early 1980s, as some government agencies have claimed. So what he says is the solution to the problem is, it is very important to raise prices at the gas pump in order to convince you that there is some shortage, because if you can still drive around and get gas plentifully at a low price, why many Americans, most Americans, will continue to believe that this manufactured shortage doesn't exist. One of the best indications of how phony all this is, it seems to me, is the fact that the new budget for the Department of Energy includes a proposal of $12.6 billion in financing for the Department of Energy. How much money is that? That is more than all of last year's combined profits, both domestic and overseas, of the top 20 oil companies. They want to give, in other words, they want to give the Energy Department more of your tax dollars than the amount of profits made by all the oil companies all put together in all their domestic and overseas operations. And remember that these oil companies, no matter what you can say about many of them, and of course I've written critically, as we all have about many of them, nevertheless you do have to admit that for the money we pay at the gas pump, they do sell us oil, don't they? They do sell us gas. What do we get for this $12.6 billion? Well, of course, we get thousands of additional federal bureaucrats imposing thousands of additional regulations, and the more of that we get, the less gas we get. Now, here's an interesting clipping from the New York Daily News. I was riding on a plane April 7th somewhere, and here's a clipping. It says, he wants to be a woman on welfare. <laughs> Seems there's a guy in, uh, in Jersey City, excuse me, Jersey City. <laughs> there's a guy in Jersey City. He's a man. He wants to be a woman. I don't think he's going to make it. <laughs> he thinks he is. He wants a sex change operation. And the welfare people in Jersey City have decided to give him what he wants. As a matter of fact, recently an announcement was ma made by a gentleman named Thomas M. Tierney. He's director of the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare Medicare Bureau in Baltimore. And Mr. Tierney has announced that in the future, sex change operations will be covered by Medicare if the patient has at least one year's experience living as a member of the opposite sex. I've read that over several times. I still don't know what it means. If you do, please don't tell us. Also, I think it's interesting here, it says that this is being sponsored by the Medicare department. Now, that, as I understand it, it deals with people over 65, doesn't it? So I presume what this means is if you've lived as one sex for 65 years, why now, after you're retired, if you like uh, to put new interest in your, into your life, they'll change you into another sex. Now here's one of my favorite items, and all we're doing here is quickly going over a few examples uh, showing us where we stand. One of my favorite examples appeared in the review of the news. I'm sure some of you remember it. Uh, it seems that the Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, has issued a new announcement uh, regarding the manufacture of car batteries, automobile, automobile battery manufacturers. There may be some of those people in the audience. 
in case there are, you should know that from now on you need to put a label on your batteries uh, warning the people who buy your batteries not to drink the water from the battery. Was there anybody here planning to do that? No. Well, I wouldn't think that anybody in an audience as sophisticated as this uh, would be planning to do something like that, but it may be that on your way home after this harangue, you may spot somebody, you know, on the side of the freeway about to begin, about to uh, drink the water from his battery. You now know that this is a violation of federal uh, regulations. <laughs> now here's an interesting, another interesting item from the Boston Herald American from San Francisco. Uh, it seems a man recently went into the post office in San Francisco uh, to try to buy some stamps. And of course, this was ipso facto proof right off the bat that he was suspicious. And uh, the sign on the wall said that the post office would close at 6 o'clock. Uh, at 5.30, the clerk tried to pull the window down and uh, the gentleman is a small businessman, and he says he's been frustrated for many months, uh, strangling in red tape and petty bureaucrats. And so something snapped, apparently, when the clerk tried to pull that window down at 5.30. And uh, the gentleman, his name is Cox, Martin Cox. He says, I was mad. I had been waiting all this time, and nobody told me they were closing. So I stuck half my body in the window, <laughs> stopping it from closing, and told them I would wait all night if I had to. As you would expect, word that a citizen was in the post office trying to buy stamps spread with electrifying rapidity throughout the post office. Four uniformed guards appeared on the scene, threw Mr. Cox against the wall for a body search, drew a pistol, held it against his chest. He says, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to die for trying to buy stamps. They took Mr. Cox away to jail where he spent the night and uh, at last word, according to this item, he is waiting to appear before a U.S. magistrate on charges of having dared to try to buy stamps. Then, of course, ladies and gentlemen, there's the Panama Canal. And, you know, by the way, this reminds me, I got the brochure for the rally a couple of days, no more than a couple of days, after the Panama Canal Treaty votes. Well, I open up the brochure to see what I'm supposed to do because, as you know, I just work here. They tell me where to go, what to say. It's totally monolithic. <laughs> I opened up the brochure to see what I was supposed to say, and it says here, Alan Stang will deliver inspiring comments on victories within the Americanist movement. I get this two days after the Panama Canal Treaty votes. Well, frankly, I was a little discouraged, uh, to tell you the truth. I, I sat down and I, I mulled the situation over and I wondered what I'd done wrong. I constantly travel around the country telling people about uh, the wonders of Mrs. Quinn, about her loveliness. I tell people constantly she's a sumptuous morsel of feminine loveliness, which you all know. I don't have to tell you that. Uh, and so uh, I wondered why is it that I get this assignment two days after the, the, the treaty votes? I couldn't figure it out. Then I thought back, as I'm sure you all will remember as regular convention goers, regular rally goers, you may remember uh, some years ago uh, when the rally was still held down in Pueblo, remember, uh, at the Holiday Inn there, 
Uh, you may recall uh, Robert Cardinal Welch appointed me a Monsignor in the Catholic Church. <laughs> I thought maybe this had something to do with it. Uh, a couple of years later, after I wrote my, my uh, article on Cardinal Mincenti, I, uh, I went to Mr. Welch. In fact, I saw him outside of my office. I heard some commotion out there. I went out and there he was. And uh, I said, Mr. Welch, on the basis of the fact that I just came out with my Mincenti article, I've been hearing confessions for a couple of years now, uh, I feel I deserve promotion to bishop. He said, well, it's quite a coincidence you bring the subject up because I was right in the middle of taking steps to have you excommunicated. <laughs> well, I, I called up Mrs. Welch. I said, what is this? He's, he's having me excommunicated. She said, your mistake was you went to him in the first place. He doesn't have any influence around here. You should have come to me. <laughs> yeah. And this, by the way, reminds me uh, of the statement uh, that our leader is, has authored, the famous statement, I'm sure you're all familiar with it, behind every great man is a woman constantly telling him he's not so hot. <laughs> <clears throat> then, of course, there was another problem which I knew as soon as I saw the position of my speech in the rally. Remember, last year I started everything off. Well, when I saw that I was the last speaker, I knew, without knowing anything else, I knew that by the time I got up to speak, everything would have been said. And sure enough, the previous speakers have given my entire speech, ladies and gentlemen. There's no need for us to stay any longer. We can go out and join the pulchritude at the beauty pageant. Uh, but, but I thought, as long as I'm in town, and I don't have anything else to do this afternoon anyway, uh, why don't I, I just go through the motions here. Uh, about the Panama Canal, Remember, last night, Senator Lewis was talking about good news and bad news. Well, here, too, there's good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is uh, Jimmy Carter went to Panama, and the bad news is he came back. <laughs> now, there is one part of my speech that they couldn't have stolen because it's from the page proofs of American Opinion magazine. And I've been guarding these for the last two days. I, I was afraid maybe uh, Sherman would break into my room, steal that, and give that part of my speech. So I've been carrying them around with me, so that at, least, at least I could tell you something you haven't heard yet. So let me just give you a little preview of uh, what we've done in the scoreboard issue of American Opinion magazine, which you should be getting when you arrive home. And let me tell you just a little bit about uh, what I said about the, the canal which is this, passage of the treaties that will deliver American territory to Castro-white dictator Omar Torricos no doubt has discouraged some conservatives. Many thousands of dollars and much patriotic energy were spent. Every poll your reporter is aware of said that people of all colors, religions, backgrounds, and political persuasions were overwhelmingly opposed to the giveaway of our canal. The senators themselves admitted as much. But the Senate nonetheless voted to surrender American interests, in the face of which some conservatives have told your reporter of their frustration, asking, what's the use? Does it really pay to write our senators or congressmen? Why bother if the senators knew so perfectly what we think and nevertheless contemptuously kicked our clear sentiment into Omar's cocked Panama hat? There are at least a couple of answers to these sensible questions. First, remember, that the Panama takeover was a major and long-standing goal of a conspiracy determined to enslave us. Its major purpose is to implement Lenin's long-range strategy for world conquest, which Sherman mentioned to you this morning and 
which, remember, somebody long ago paraphrased, first we will take Eastern Europe, then the masses of Asia, then we shall encircle that last bastion of capitalism, the United States. We will not have to attack. It will fall like an overripe fruit into our hands, which reminds me that some of you may remember that last year, uh, Charlie Smith made the comment that in view of the present homosexual explosion, it might be worthwhile to rewrite Lenin's dictum to say that the country is falling into the hands of overripe fruit. <laughs> and, and it is obvious that things have been going Lenin's way. The communists already control Cuba and Jamaica. Once they control the canal, they will be able to turn the Caribbean into the Soviet version of Mare Nostrum. Their front line will be just off Galveston and New Orleans. Indeed, the Panama betrayal will intensify the campaign to dismantle our country. I certainly mean no offense or insomnia to the fine people of Silver City, Alamogordo, Roswell, and Albuquerque, but in a sense it is fair to say that we have less right to New Mexico than we did to the Canal Zone. The land of enchantment, remember, is ours by purchase and conquest, but we bought the Canal Zone free and clear. What legal argument, therefore, remains to prevent the giveaway of New Mexico? And sure enough, for years there has been a communist-backed scheme to arrange for the state to secede as an independent nation, allegedly in behalf of certain dubious descendants of the original conquistadores from whom the hated Anglos were supposed to have stolen the land. There is a similar scheme, as you know, devised by Stalin himself in 1928, in which five southern states would secede to form a so-called Negro Soviet Republic. And sure enough, the communist-founded Republic of New Africa is now active in Mississippi, pushing that purpose. There is a scheme to give Maine to about 3,000 Indians who are financed by the radical Ford Foundation. All of this seeming lunacy will now be advanced with increasing ferocity. And if you believe that all this is a coincidence, you will no doubt also want to participate in American Opinion's special cut-rate deal on Ethiopian savings bonds. <laughs> but you must act quickly. This offer is going fast. So it is almost fair to say that preventing the giveaway of our mag magnificent and strategically vital canal would have been tantamount to defeating the conspiracy itself. At the very least, it would have amounted to a smashing victory a midway of the magnitude of the coming expulsion of the communist-controlled United Nations from our soil. It would have exhilarated millions of patriots who would have immediately realized that victory over our collectivist would-be masters is possible. Which brings us to point two, which is that because the Panama giveaway was so important to our country's enemies, both foreign and domestic, they obviously put everything they had into the battle. David Rockefeller's man, Jimmy Carter, apparently applied enough pressure to carbonate a warehouse worth of billy beer. Senator, Senator Ed Brooke of Taxachusetts says that Carter made him, quote, a rather crude offer, end quote. That's what he said. The Taxachusetts Republican hasn't said what the crudeness consisted of, but of course he voted for the sellout treaties. And now you notice that the powers that be obviously have decided to dump Brooke I haven't the slightest idea myself why. Could part of the reason be that he said publicly that Carter had made him a rather crude offer? I don't know. But you notice, even after voting for the treaty, now they've decided to dump Brooke. In an unsuccessful attempt to turn Nebraska Senator Ed Zorinsky around, Carter sent a limousine to cart the legislator to the White House. 
The driver got lost, and the senator wound up opening the doors of assorted automobiles to ask the drivers whether they had been sent to get him. Can you imagine? This is just another indication of what a hokey administration this is. Here, they arranged for a U.S. senator to be standing on the street corner in Capitol Hill, on Capitol Hill, opening up car doors, asking people if they've been sent to get him. <laughs> totally ridiculous. Herman E. Talmadge, the gentleman farmer from Georgia, apparently sold out in exchange for Jimmy's backing of a farm bill that would cost you still more billions of dollars. And then, of course, there's the gentleman you've already heard so much about, Senator DeConcini of Arizona, who is said to have changed sides in return for federal orders of copper for two of his major campaign contributors. Here's a letter DeConcini wrote during the campaign, uh, during the campaign in 1976. I don't know whether anyone has read this to you, just in case they haven't read this letter to you. It's so important. Let me read you what DeConcini said on October 18, 1976. He was writing to a letter, a letter to a lady in Phoenix. He says, thanks for your letter of September 30, 1976, with the enclosure regarding the Panama Canal. I have spoken out publicly in opposition to Mr. Kissinger's giveaway of the canal and intend to continue to do so. I will be a strong senator against more appeasement and do everything possible to get rid of Mr. Kissinger. I think he has been a disaster to the United States and we cannot continue this type of leadership in the foreign policy area. Dennis DeConcini. Now, if a private businessman were to do something comparable to this in private business, I think it's fair to say that by the next day, he would be under indictment. By next week, he would be on trial. And by next month, he would be in the federal penitentiary if he were to do something comparable to this. But here you see this fraud, this liar, in just a few short months, completely going back, completely turning around, completely going back on what he told the people he was going to do. And in American opinion, we go on to say, we shall find out what the others were promised when Jimmy Carter appoints them to plush federal jobs after outraged voters begin to retire them. Indeed, Senate Majority Leader, Majority Leader Robert Byrd, the senator from West Virginia and the Ku Klux Klan, publicly admitted that voting for the giveaway could be political suicide. And there was Sam Nunn of Georgia, who also participated in the sellout, and who then tried to cover his tracks with the help of Torricos. In a typical example of communist boasting, Omar announced after the vote that if it had gone the other way, he would have destroyed the canal. Sam Nunn promptly used Omar's announcement to claim that he'd been tricked, that if he'd known of the Panamanian puff adder's true sentiments, he might have voted differently. It won't wash. You certainly knew for at least a year, Sam Nunn certainly knew for at least a year, what Torricos really is. He knew that he is a drug dealer and has been a communist since his youth. He knew that the people who control his government are communists. He knew that Torricos and Castro have been plotting together. And as a U.S. Senator, Sam Nunn knew even better than the rest of us all this information and more. But he voted for the treason anyway. All of which is a dramatic reflection of the shattering power of your telephone calls and letters. It is perfectly true that we lost the canal votes. But any of you who are needlessly disillusioned, maybe some of you still are, which is exactly how the conspiracy wants you to feel, should perhaps be wondering what the Senate votes would have been without your patriotic onslaught. Have you thought about it from that point of view? And it is reasonable to speculate that the treason treaties would have won in a walk without the tremendous battle that you put up. The fact that you came within a peanut length of victory 
and in the Senate, remember, where the six-year term provides the inmates with three times as much insulation as the house, is dynamite proof of how effective you were. So keep those cards and letters coming, folks. And bear in mind, bear in mind that the canal battle isn't over. Even Jimmy Carter, an advocate of one man, one vote for communist terrorists in Africa, the same Jimmy Carter who illegally denied congressmen the right to vote on this disposition of American territory as authorized by the Constitution, even, <laughs> even Jimmy Carter agrees that the House must vote on the $2 billion worth of bribes that are supposed to accompany the giveaway. Remember, in fact, that appropriations of your money must originate in the House. And since you did so well in the Senate, imagine how well you will do in the much more responsible House, unless you foolishly believe the pretense that your cards and letters do no good. It is perfectly possible that the job you are going to do on the House now will result in a smashing defeat for the Panama appropriations which would certainly make Omar Torrijos and his bosses in the New York banks very sad. Indeed, if you do the job in time, a conservative Congress could abrogate the Panama Canal treaties, whether Jimmy Carter likes it or not, on the firm constitutional ground that they were illegal because the House was not allowed to vote. Omar Torrijos would be told calmly, warmly, with the most gracious Carter-type smile, Looks like that, as you know. <laughs> that if he makes one move on American territory, we will send in the Marines and let his successors throw his carcass over the wall onto the grounds of the Cuban embassy. <laughs> now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, remember my assignment is talk, to talk about the victories that we Americanists, that you Americanists have racked up. And so let's quickly take a look at some of the other things that have been happening, happening in the country. I think it's a tremendous victory. Uh, it, the fact is a tremendous victory that in one city after another, they have been voting down, the people have dramatically been voting down these homosexual, so-called homosexual rights bills. Now... <laughs> What are these bills really all about? We are not saying by any means what some people say, you know, I'm sure you've all met these people, let's go down to the queer bar and beat up some queers. I've never understood that myself. I think that's just as crazy as being queer. But what these homosexual organizations are trying to do is to get us, first of all, to accept the idea that they are normal and secondly, even worse, to force themselves upon us, upon our children, especially in the schools, and uh, to have uh, them inflicted upon us whether we want them there or not. And this absolutely is impossible. It's not going to be. These people, unfortunately, are pathetic. Something is wrong with them. They are not gay. That is the most blatant attempt to steal a word since the attempted theft of the word liberal. Gay is a beautiful word, isn't it? It's a lovely word. These people aren't gay. They're queer. So I think it's a tremendous victory that people across the country, in Wichita, 
recently in Minneapolis, and now in Eugene. I was dumbfounded by the result in Eugene. You know, Eugene, Oregon. Eugene, Oregon is a university town. I certainly expected that the perverts would win there, but remember, even there in Eugene, they were voted down dramatically, and not by birchers, by people, normal people. Now, of course, the immortal sergeant already mentioned to you what has been happening in the field of guns, in the fact that the people have been flooding the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms with so many letters that it appears that these proposed regulations in which they want to register every gun in the country are stalled. Let's, so hope, let's hope that they are stalled permanently. And so this, of course, is a tremendous victory. And then, of course, there is the fact that in Illinois recently, I'm sure you're all aware, quite recently, just a, I guess it was a week or, week or ten days ago, once again, in the face of all the pressure that these collectivists could mount, in the face of the tremendous pressure that they were able to mount, nevertheless, remember, this fraud known as ERA was voted down again in the Illinois legislature. Another tremendous victory. Now, this reminds me, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, to make a very important point with regard to guns and ERA. Do you remember that in 1975, Squeaky Fromm was convicted of trying to shoot our president, right? Then you'll remember also in 1975, Sarah Jane Moore was convicted of trying to shoot our president. I'm sure in an audience as sophisticated as this, I don't have to explain any further, or do I? Well, look, remember, the statistics show that in 1975, a full year, 100% of the people convicted of trying to kill our president were women. I mean, isn't that obvious? Those are statistics. And from that obvious statistical reality, we should come to the obvious conclusion, which is that the John Birch Society here at the rally is proud to announce our new campaign to demand federal legislation immediately to register all women. <laughs> we are demanding that every owner of a woman... <laughs> ...be required to report to the nearest federal building or post office and register her immediately. An amendment to the legislation that we are asking for will, will require the ending of all acquisition of women through the U.S. mails. <laughs> and in fact, ladies and gentlemen, if that doesn't work, reluctantly, we will have to go to complete confiscation. <laughs> we must do whatever is necessary to protect the president. Here's a little clipping from the Los Angeles Herald Examiner. Scaffold danger known before death fall. Remember those 51 victims, sadly, who fell from a scaffold in West Virginia? It was April 27th, 51 men, unbelievable disaster, were killed. It turns out OSHA knew something was wrong for many, many months. 
It turns out OSHA isn't perfect either, huh? But now it turns out although OSHA knew something was wrong, OSHA is trying to psych the company for $108,000 in, in fines while we are told here that an, that an OSHA inspector wrote a memorandum about the possibility that something was wrong with the scaffold, which proves that, once again, OSHA isn't perfect either. Now, of course, by this time, you're all familiar with the tremendous uh, effect that our campaign against OSHA has had. It hasn't been mentioned in the national press, the prostitute national press, excuse me. Uh, it hasn't been mentioned in the prostitute national press, uh, but I think it's fair to say that you get the major share of the credit for the decision, imperfect though it was, but the decision that we got recently from the U.S. Supreme Court. You were the people who started it. Had you not done all the work that you did in what we used to call the Nixon OSHA committees, remember, exposing what OSHA really was? Remember, in the beginning, when we went to the businessmen, they didn't have the slightest idea what it was. We had to tell them. Remember those days? The decision that we got just a few weeks ago in Washington was a direct result of the work that you were doing over all those years in which I'm sure many times you said to yourselves, well, gee whiz, what is this all adding up to? What is it leading to? Are we accomplishing anything? And here you see, we got this decision, which although it, it is not by any means a, a tremendous smashing complete victory, nevertheless, it certainly proves that even the the U.S. Supreme Court couldn't get around the Constitution. Maybe that's a good way to put it. What they said in their decision was that, yes, you have to get a warrant in order to make an inspection of a premises. But then they turned around and they said, but you can get the warrant automatically. Well, now, if you can get a In order to get a warrant, you have to show a judge probable cause, says the Constitution, right? You have to show the judge a good reason to believe that a specific violation of law is going on in the premises that you want to search. If you say that a warrant is automatic, well, then it isn't a warrant at all. It's just a formality, an empty formality. So you see, that decision by no means was perfect, but it certainly has gone a long way to demonstrate the fact that you do have the, the right to demand a warrant. So I would urge you to do what I've been urging you to do from the very beginning, which is continue to demand, continue to use your rights, to demand a warrant, to demand that they fill out the public servant's questionnaire. You have the right to ask these questions on that public servant's questionnaire you've all heard about. A judge has ruled, I think it was in South Dakota, a judge ruled you are not allowed to ask these inspectors about which penitentiaries they have been in. <laughs> uh, you're not allowed to ask those questions, but all the other questions on the questionnaire you are allowed to ask and to get answers to under the Freedom of Information Act and you're allowed to demand to continue pressing this question of probable cause. And here's another uh, very interesting development from the Colorado rancher and farmer, I guess that says, uh, which says that uh, uh, July 1st, well, just yesterday, the day before yesterday, Colorado let its state OSHA evaporate. So Colorado no longer has a state OSHA and has tossed the ball back to the federal government so that they can take the blame. <laughs> And, of course, there, there's the question of school budgets. As you may remember, quite recently in Ohio, in Columbus, for example, Cleveland, huge American cities, people voted against these school budgets. Now, you remember that a school budget used to have almost as much authority as the Ten Commandments in our country. 
But here you see people are now beginning to vote these school budgets down, and they are having actually to close school systems. And of course, I would say to that, let them close. The kids... The kids who are victimized in these schools, well, we've all seen the unfortunate results in so many cases. Uh, if we let these school systems close, the ingenuity of the American people very quickly, I think Mr. Welch made this comment in a different context just about an hour ago, oh, with regard to the monetary system, uh, I think we would see very quickly the private schools begin to spring up to do the job that is necessary. And of course, already you do see private schools springing up across the country like the proverbial prairie fire, don't you? So you see that is, that is already beginning to happen. Then, of course, there is the crucially important labor reform bill, the misnamed labor reform bill. Uh, of course, you know that the labor unions have tremendous overweening power already, but this labor reform bill would have given them even more power and would have allowed no hearings so that the union, the workers who were being asked to vote on union membership wouldn't even have been allowed time to hear whether or not they wanted to join the union in the first place. They would have had to vote before they had time to hear that. That was one of the very dangerous proposals contained in the labor reform bill. And of course, we've just heard that it has failed of passage as a result of the filibuster led by the great Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. So there is another victory. Now, of course, with regard to Social Security, there's something I should mention quite encouraging, uh, which happened right here in your neck of the woods. Once again, back in New Mexico, Congressman Manuel Lujan, congressman in New Mexico, he recently sent a questionnaire to his constituents in which he asked them, what do you think we should do about Social Security? And Congressman Lujan reports that of the 30,000 people who answered this questionnaire, more people than ever before who answered one of his questionnaires. Of the 30,000 constituents who answered, 70% of the people who answered said they want Social Security to be made optional, voluntary. Now, this of course would be tantamount to voting for the abolition of Social Security, would it not? Because nobody's going, nobody who is smart enough to be able to go to work and do a job is going to be dumb enough to pay Social Security if he doesn't have to. He's going to buy a policy from a private company in which he will earn many times as much as he is earning in the forced Social Security system. So in that vote, the people were literally saying, 70% of them, that they want to abolish Social Security. Now, do you remember the 64 campaign when, uh, I think it was Barry Goldwater in the 64 campaign, said Social Security should be made optional? You remember he was denounced, he's crazy, he's mad, he's insane, lock him up. Well, now you see 70% of the people are saying exactly the same thing. And of course, there is Proposition 13. It's been discussed several times. Chuck Armour mentioned it last night. Other people have, have mentioned it. And of course, we're told that uh, as a result of Proposition 13 in California and other states, why services may be abolished. My reaction to that would be abolish them. Haven't you noticed that as the taxes go up, the quality of the services we get go down? Once again, what kind of nonsense is this they're trying to sell us? Any service the government is doing, private enterprise can do better, quicker, cheaper.
Now, of course, we're hearing in the wake of Proposition 13 a lot of talk about the tax revolt, how the tax revolt is spreading across the country. And of course, in a way, this is very encouraging. The important thing to, to realize here, I believe, is that we should underline the fact, well, this too has been mentioned, that the ultimate solution to the tax problem on the federal level is the Liberty Amendment, because this would put a rest to, to the problem once and for all. The Liberty Amendment, which already has been ratified by the legislatures of seven states, it's a very serious amendment. Le seven legislatures over the years have ratified it. This would completely abolish the income tax. Un until then, it seems to me the, the s soundest principle to follow is whatever you do about the income tax, it, it should be legal and it should conform to the IRS regulations. Now, in the, in the wake of Proposition 13, people are going to come around and they're going to tell you, somebody was telling me yesterday, somebody is uh, traveling around telling you, when the, I, when the IRS agent comes to visit you, you kick him in the leg. Well, uh, you could kick him in the leg, but you probably wouldn't get a chance to get many more kicks in than one or two, and then I suppose they take you away. Uh, then uh, people will say, well, you just don't pay, just don't file. Willful failure to file is a violation of federal law. It's a felony. You can't just refuse to, to pay. So in the wake of Proposition 13, many people are going to come around with all these ideas. The principle that should be applied, it seems to me, is, is it legal? Does it conform to the regulations? One thing I certainly would suggest that seems to me to make sense is apply the same thing to the income tax that we applied to OSHA. Now remember what I advised you to do when we were beginning to battle OSHA, I advised you to demand a warrant and to demand that they fill out the public servant's questionnaire because you had the legal right to do that. Hmm? It seems now I've been vindicated because the thing has been repealed to some extent. When the IRS man comes, you have the perfect right to remain silent, not to tell him anything. Who says that? The United States Supreme Court does in the case of Garner versus the United States. Are you familiar with that decision in 1976? The US Supreme Court says, you have the right not to tell the inspector anything. You can't lie. Don't ever tell them a lie. That's what they're waiting for you to do. But you do have the right not to tell them anything. You do have the right to ask them to fill out a public servant's questionnaire. Exactly the same right you had with OSHA applies to the people in the IRS. But the important thing to remember is, in the wake of Proposition 13, it seems to me is, if you do tell them anything, tell them the truth. You don't have to tell them anything at all. But if you do tell them something, tell them the truth. And everything we do, as always, in the society has to conform completely to the law and to the regulations. And of course, one of the biggest things we've got going for us, as you know, is Jimmy Carter himself, who makes King Kong look like Dale Carnegie. <laughs> now, of course, now, of course, as Larry McDonald has told us many times, Congress is the key. Right now, it seems to me, realistically, practically, it would be unrealistic to think of the presidency. We don't want to forget about it completely, but it would be unrealistic to think exclusively of the presidency. As Larry says, Congress is the key. That is accessible. We can do it. We're doing it right now. Who are some of these people in Congress who presume to know better than you do how you should live your lives? There's Fred Richmond, for example, leading liberal from New York. Recently, uh, Fred uh, was arrested in Washington. It seems he prefers uh, little boys to big girls. One of the victim's mothers sent an undercover policeman to uh, Fred's house to ask him about it. Fred propositioned the undercover policeman. Uh, he's quite busy, 
but uh, even though he's so busy, it seems he still has time to go to the floor of the House and vote you down the tubes. This fall, the congressman is scheduled to get another automatic raise of uh, $4,000, uh, which, of course, as you know, is the result of their spending you further down the tubes. The way they've arranged it, there's a cost of living increase in the congressman's pay so that the more they spend you down the tubes, the more inflation they create, the more the cost of living goes up as a result, the more their pay goes up. So the more you go down, the more they go up. It's nice work if you can get it. Now here, here ladies and gentlemen, here's a very interesting article from Family Weekly. Did some of you see this? I don't know what the date is here. It's from uh, some California paper, Family Weekly. It's quite recent and it says, why so many members of Congress are quitting? They're quitting in droves. They're quitting in droves. Uh, I think it was, was it John Reese? Yeah, John Reese mentioned Mike Harrington. He's decided not to run for re-election. Did he decide not to run for re-election because of all the exposure we gave him in our articles? I did it on my radio show several times of his connection with the KGB financing. Is that one of the reasons? I don't know. We'd like to think it is. Whatever the reason is, he's decided not to run. Uh, then, of course, it says in the body of the article, Lloyd Meads, he's a congressman from Washington. He says, people don't write in anymore and ask you to do something. They demand that you do something. <laughs> they are snarly, biteish, inconsiderate, intemperate, and demanding. They call you in the middle of the night from a bar demanding you vote a certain way. You can tell they're blasted. I presume that's you he's talking about. <laughs> so you see, all these congressmen, so many congressmen are quitting. They decided not to stand for re-election. As a matter of fact, also in American opinion, to continue with this preview, uh, this mini preview that I'm giving you of the scoreboard issue that you will get when you arrive at your homes, it seems that Americans for Democratic Action recently published a very fascinating booklet entitled A Citizen's Guide to the Right Wing. Americans for Democratic Action, you may remember, recently was headed by George Misgovern. And uh, you may remember last year I played you a tape of that Communist Party leader here at the rally I was on the radio, on the television with in Pittsburgh. Uh, well, it turns out that he was brought into Pittsburgh by the local unit of Americans for Democratic Action, this top Communist Party official. Uh, Americans for Democratic Action, of course, poses as a moderate liberal outfit. So they published this booklet, which they call A Citizen's Guide to the Right Wing. And they say, new right leaders are not rabid crackpots or raving zealots. The movement they are building is not a lunatic fringe, but the programmed product of right-wing passion plus corporate wealth, plus 20th century technology, and its strength is increasing almost daily. In 1978, it represents a danger to every progressive and moderate officeholder and candidate in the nation. Now, now remember, I'm talking now to all you people who are discouraged, who have been discouraged, and who wonder, gee, does all this, any of this stuff that we're doing actually add up to anything? Candidates elected by the new right can reverse the U.S. political and social climate. This is ADA talking. Carefully selected, trained, and briefed, these candidates, if elected, will work to defeat every social program that you and ADA support. And the booklet, the booklet goes on to say, these new right organizations have begun to win. In Congress, their associates, 
a small group of extreme conservatives <laughs> have frightened and harassed what was supposed to be the most progressive Congress in recent history into a state of political shock. <laughs> Remember, this is ADA talking. These are the, the leaders of collectivism talking to their followers. And they, they say that this small band that we have there now have frightened this massive number of collectivist congressmen into a state of political shock. I never thought myself that Larry McDonald was so frightening. He seems like a, like a real fine, gentle guy, but uh, apparently they must find him quite terrifying. In the current Congress, they have beaten new voter registration legislation, public financing of elections. Here's a list of your victories. The Consumer Protection Agency, the Common Situs Picketing Bill, and scores of other attempts at needed progressive legislation. In party politics, they have succeeded in installing their people in dozens of key local, state, and national party positions. In four special congressional elections last year in which they participated, they won three stunning upsets. That's what they call it, stunning upsets. That, that's the phrase that they use. Someone mentioned, did someone mention the defeat of Senator Case in New Jersey? Remember, uh, I think it was... Bob Taft, if I remember this correctly, it was Bob Taft who said after the 52 convention, when the nomination was stolen from him by the Eisenhower supporters, he said the only guy he could never forgive in all this maneuvering was Clifford Case. This gives you an example of how far back this guy's collectivist activities go. And of course now, once again, Clifford Case is no longer with us. Then there is there's Senator Frank Moss of Utah, former Senator Frank Moss, and in the booklet, he provides an account of why he is no longer in the Senate. He says, the ability of these groups to mount deceptive and divisive mass mailings and media campaigns and their willingness to stretch every tenet of campaign ethics gave all of us a jolt. The new right candidate was well-financed and coached from outside. What worked in my state worked also in many other places in our country. This is what they say themselves. See, this is not me trying to give you a pep talk. Hmm? This is what the enemy says themselves as they advise their people what to do about this terrible threat that, that, that they are now facing. Now, of course, ladies and gentlemen, the answer to the problem, the best answer to the problem is trim tax reform immediately. It is trim that these people really are talking about. It is trim that they are so afraid of. Just to give you a few examples of the reaction to trim, the reactions to trim that are now pouring in, here's a letter, for example, from the great Texas Congressman Jim Collins. He says, those who are active on the trim committee have performed a great community service. Then there's Congressman Bob Stump of Arizona. He says, I would like to commend you and the other members of the Arizona trim committee for the information provided to the people of Arizona on federal legislation through the trim bulletin. So you see, the good reports from the fine congressman, regardless of party, remember we don't care what party they're in as long as it's not the Communist Party, the good results are pouring in. Now here's a report from the late congressman Bill Ketchum. I was shocked to read just the other day. He died. He was a young man. He just suddenly died. I hope he wasn't murdered for, for Pete's sake. But anyway, he died, this fine congressman, just recently. And he said, I can attest to the excellence of the information presented by the trim organization. So you see, 
the reactions depend upon what kind of congressman they are. We simply, without any reference to political party, without any reference to whether we're supporting somebody or opposing somebody, tell the people how the congressmen vote using our First Amendment rights, and you see the results are pouring in. For example, uh, to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, here's a report from a Laramie paper which tells us that Congressman Tino Roncalio, that great humanitarian, is not running for re-election. He's one of those who's decided to quit. And his reason, he says, right-wing radio programs. <laughs> I don't know whether he's talking about me. I hope so, but uh, there's, no, there's no proof here. But then he also, he blames, here's what he also blames for not running for re-election. Hard right groups like the John Birch Society and Taxpayers Reform. I know they run computer mailings to tens of thousands. They are everywhere. <laughs> then uh, here's a letter, a very interesting letter from a gentleman I'm sure you've all heard of. Morris K. Udall. And uh, Morris Udall writes to a constituent, he says, the trim group which publishes this does a similar job on most of the Democrats in the Congress. They usually pick votes that are supported by most of the Democratic representatives and senators and can be presented as big spending, unsound, socialistic kinds of votes. That's all he says. He doesn't say that's not what they are. He just says... That's the way they can be presented. I presume they can be presented that way because that's what they are. And then here's a, another letter from Big Mo. This one is priceless. He says, There's not much I can do about these things. The figures used in them are distorted almost beyond recognition, and the votes are not very representative, but the basic facts are correct. Frankly, I, I was a little surprised here, ladies and gentlemen. I, I knew the guy was dumb, but I had no idea of the magnitude of the problem. It may simply be, it may simply be that the air all the way up there is too rarefied to supply sufficient oxygen to the brain. Uh, here's a note from our leader, Don Kennedy. I was ordered to read this. Uh, it says here, Congressman Udall was at a meeting recently, and it says here, Sahuarita member Jenny Gay distributed a bundle of Trim's bulletins at a public meeting which Mr. Udall was holding. People starting to read them during the congressman's talk. A man asked a representative about his vote on one of the bills listed. Udall said he had not voted that way and said something to the effect that you can't believe everything you read. The constituent challenged him on it. Others joined in and the congressman became visibly angered and flustered, stopped all further questions and stalked off. Now... Now, this proves, ladies and gentlemen, something that I always am careful to say when I talk about trim, which is, if you haven't gotten involved in trim yet, you will find when you do get involved, you will never have as much fun as you have when you get involved in trim. Are you looking for a new hobby? Forget skateboarding. That's for old people. This is where the action is. Here's, a, here's the bulletin that they distribute in the 10th District of Missouri. I was there a few months ago. And uh, as you can see, the congressman there has a perfect voting record. 
every vote he casts is for higher taxes and more government. And uh, appropriately, it's printed on pink paper. <laughs> I'm sure that's not a coincidence. Nothing is. Uh, recently, some people in the 10th District of Missouri decided to organize a dinner, a testimonial dinner, to honor this distinguished legislator. And when the people came into the hall to sit down, they found at the doors members of our local trim committee handing out this bulletin. And the people going in took the bulletin and they went in. Presumably they thought it was the program for the event. <laughs> because you see, ladies and gentlemen, one of our many secret weapons in the Birch Society, as you know, most of our weapons are so secret, I can't even mention them to you. But one of our many secret weapons in the Birch Society is that our members look normal. Some of them, some of them. Well, they took the, the bulletin and went in, and when this distinguished legislator got up to the podium to make his remarks, he looked out and he saw a sea of people doing this. He got so flustered, so flustered, so shaken, he mumbled for about five minutes, announced he had a previous engagement, and left a $25 a play testimonial dinner. Once again, this proves, this proves that you're going to have more fun than you ever had before when you get involved in the trim program. Here's the best proof of all of what I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen. The Idaho Statesman, April 3rd, just a, some, some weeks ago. Demos gird for war against John Birch Society. Now, why would the Democrats be girding for war against the John Birch Society? We're not making war against the Democratic Party. We have nothing against the Democratic Party. It's a wonderful, fine, historic, American organization. Why have these democratic leaders declared war on the Birch Society? Trim is the answer. Apparently, these people at the top can't take the heat. They can't take the simple fact that without regard to political party and without recommending that anybody be defeated or that anybody be elected, we don't do that, as you know, in the Trim Bulletin. We simply say, here's the way the guy voted. And they can't stand the simple revelation of us showing the people how their congressmen really voted. Because, you know, one of the many things we found out in the trim program is so many of these congressmen come, come back to a district somewhere in the country and they walk through the streets, shaking your hands, grinning from ear to ear, like this, you know, like this. They listen sympathetically to your problems, then they go back and they vote exactly the opposite of what they told you they would vote. Isn't that right? And people think, because the congressman said, I'm going to vote a certain way, that's the way he voted. Well, we're setting the record straight simply by performing the public service using our First Amendment rights of showing the people, well, here's the way the guy really voted. If you like it, fine. If you don't like it, that's fine too. But at least here you know that's the way the guy voted. Now, here's the latest revelation. June 17th, just a few days ago, June 17th, Birch Society is election panel target. Federal Election Commission is actually trying to shut trim down. Can you believe that? They're actually trying to shut it down. They want an injunction to prevent us from continuing to publish this newsletter. And I think the best comment that you can make on that is uh, what Charlie Smith always says. Uh, how does he put it? If you throw a rock in among some hogs, the one that screams is the one you hit. <laughs> well now, you can be sure, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to go all the way with this trim idea, since it is so firmly based. FEC can say whatever they like. We're going to go all the way to the top with this. 
and we're going to win this battle simply by using this trim committee bulletin. So here you see, I've just given you a few, just a few examples. I could go on here another hour, I'm sure, but I see Mrs. Quinn is already walking down the aisle to, uh, to drag me off. So I will wind up. <laughs> Let me just wind up quickly by repeating what every other speaker, just about every other speaker has said here all during the rally. Uh, somebody mentioned, I guess it was Sherman, mentioned the Alamo, visiting the Alamo. And I remember seeing that great movie. Remember that great movie, that John Wayne movie? And remember the way it ended? That always struck me. It always struck me. It just sticks in my mind. You know how things stick in different people's minds? Remember that one of the women stayed in the Alamo? And remember when it was over, they suddenly discovered that there was a woman there? And remember when they discovered there was a woman there, well, they stood back and they let her leave, right? They let her walk out, remember? And then remember all the Mexicans when she was walking out, they took off their hats. And remember Santana took out his sword and saluted her, remember? Saluted her as she walked through the Mexican ranks. And the reason that he did that was the Mexicans were so impressed with her bravery, huh? the fact that she had been through all this battle when they thought all the women had left, remember? That always stuck in my mind. And that told me, see, these Mexicans at the time, they were enemies, right? They were the enemy of our country at the time. And they were different types of people, but they were gentlemen, right? They had a code, right? They had a code. Maybe it was a different code from ours, but they did have a code. Huh? And uh, I compared that in my mind with the women of Kiev. Remember when they made a deal? We will let you leave uh, with your women if you just surrender the city. The communists made this deal. And so they listened to the communists and laid down their arms and they walked out. They just killed all the men immediately and put all the women in, in brothels. Remember that? The, the, the word is they were all dead just in a, in a couple of months. All the women were dead. That's the difference. See, if we were battling Santa Ana now and maybe if we lost, well, we'd have quite a different situation here in Colorado. But, you know, we'd be living quite differently, but it would be, it would be, it would be living, wouldn't it? Because, once again, those people were gentlemen. These people we're up against now are not gentlemen. That little example proves it to me. There isn't any choice. There, there isn't any choice that we have other than winning. We have to win. Any other choice in this battle that we're talking about is impossible and unacceptable. Now, let me just put another idea in your mind. John Reese brilliantly showed you that they are steadily dismantling our intelligence apparatus, the intelligence apparatus that is used to fight terrorism. Isn't that right? Now, why would they be doing that if they weren't planning to unleash wholesale terror? Huh? If they weren't planning to unleash that terror, why would they bother to, un to, to dismantle the apparatus? This gives you just a couple of examples of what we are up against. This is a question of time. It's going to be decided in a very short time. We're not talking about something that is going to be decided by your distant descendants uh, in decades to come. This is going to be decided by us here now. As Mr. Welch always likes to put it, we are the heirs of all the ages. Now, a lot of people, they get discouraged. They say, well, I'm, I've been working on the same person down the block, this sore head for so many years, he won't listen. We don't need everybody. We just need a handful of people, remember. A handful of people will do the job. If somebody won't listen after a reasonable time in which you give them the facts, forget about them. The next guy waiting for you around the corner is waiting for you to put the information into his hands. The minute you put it into his hands, suddenly... A veil will, will fall from his eyes and he will understand. So let me just leave you, ladies and gentlemen, 
with the facts that not only can we win, we are not trying to give you a pep talk, not only can we win, we are winning right now, I hope, I've done everything I possibly can in this short time to prove to you, we are winning right now, if you only believe that we are winning and think like winners, as Senator Lewis was urging you to do last night, if you just think like winners and know that we will win and do what is necessary to do the job, we cannot fail. God bless you and thank you. Thank you, Alan. And as Alan and all of the speakers, and especially Mr. Lewis last night, told you, you just can't go home and forget this. Are you going to do it or are you going to go home and work? <laughs> We're going to give you until 9 o'clock in the morning to get home and get to work, okay? <laughs> Thank you very much. See you next year.